This is hell. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell streaming live and podcast shortly after during the week at thisishell.com. The world broadcast premiere of all four hours of every week's This Is Hell airs Saturday mornings from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM. You can also hear This Is Hell in abbreviated one-hour versions weekly on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho, twice every week on Lumpen Radio at lumpenradio.com. Thrice weekly on the United Kingdom-based online radio outlet, Beware, which you can find at BewareTheRadio.com. And soon to be airing on CKUW-FM in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, the community radio station at the University of Winnipeg. This weekend, there were more mass shootings and killings in the United States, as in plural mass shootings. In fact, there have been more mass shootings in 2022 than there have so far been days in 2022. This deadly violence, especially when it targets young people or people of color and other marginalized groups, has become normalized as if it is simply another part of life in the United States today. The myriad solutions have ranged from arming teachers to making all public facilities resemble fortresses or prisons even more than they already do, to banning assault weapons and doing background checks on those who are attempting to purchase guns. But none of these solutions, which emanate from the two major political parties, is enough to stop the threat of deadly violence we all face every day here in the States. What we desperately need, as today's guest argues, is a deeper consideration of what causes this violence and its normalization within our society. Returning to This Is Hell to help us all with what, with that deeper consideration will be cultural critic, writer, university professor, and journalist Henry Giroux, who wrote the Truth Out article, To End Mass Shootings, We Need to Change the Deeper Structure of Life in the United States, which was posted at Truth Out, where Henry is a member of Truth Out's board of directors. The article is part of the series The Public Intellectual, where progressive academics address important social issues in a language that is both rigorous and accessible. Henry currently holds the McMaster University Chair for Scholarship in the Public Interest in the English and Cultural Studies Department and is the Paulo Freire Distinguished Scholar in Critical Pedagogy. His most recent book is Pedagogy of Resistance Against Manufactured Ignorance. Henry was most recently on the show back in January when we discussed his truth out writing. Amid apocalyptic cynicism, let's embrace radical hope in the new year. You can follow Henry on Twitter at Henry Giroux, G-I-R-O-U-X, and you can find out more about Henry at henryageroux.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Sebastian Vopers. Sebastian, how was your weekend? Uh, the weekend was <laughs> interesting. I had an opposite day experience. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, we went to the shed aquarium with um, mother-in-law and uh, cousin and uh, from of my wife. 
And uh, yeah, at the Shad Aquarium, they have this um, this this experience where you can um, uh, uh, gently touch stingrays. No, um, really? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty awesome. And uh, so I'm standing there, uh, my my uh, arm up to my elbow in the water, flat hand out to let the stingray just pass you by and just just gently touch them. And uh, yeah, as I said, it was opposite day because all of a sudden the stingray just uh, put basically my entire hand in its mouth. So, uh, yeah, so I said, it's opposite day. My sushi is sampling me. <laughs> yes. uh, I uh, have accidentally stepped on a stingray in the past and luckily just Ouch. avoided the stinger. It wasn't a very big stingray, though. It was only like maybe 10 inches across at the very most. How big was the stingray that <laughs> engulfed your arm? Uh, I mean, they were like basically, uh, I would say like a foot and a half across. Wow. So yeah. that's pretty big. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there was a, it was out in California, and there was a big invasion at a beach of uh, stingrays, and a whole bunch of people got stung, and I saw ambul- ambulances taking people away, and I was like, maybe maybe I shouldn't be in the water right now. And maybe my brother shouldn't have taken me to the beach during a stingray warning day. Maybe nobody should be in the water. Exactly. They were there before we were. Exactly. My weekend started with a telehealth appointment with my surgeon shortly after I rolled out of bed on Saturday morning, barely making the appointment on time. And all I had to do was go from my bed to the dining room. And you know you lack discipline when you cannot get to an online appointment on time. That said, I was very relieved to see that my doctor looked uh, like he had just rolled out of bed as well and was barely in time for the appointment. It was oddly reassuring that he wasn't in a suit and tie and that he also lacked the concern for his physical appearance as much as I did about mine that early on a Saturday morning. In fact, I think he was sitting on his bed or near his bed because in the background was his pillow. So I I think he literally rolled out of, didn't even roll out of bed to have this online appointment. We both had that look of someone who barely had the chance to have a cup of coffee, definitely had not had breakfast, and we're wondering if they show cartoons on Saturday mornings anymore. The good news is, It appears that in less than a month, I will have what will hopefully be my final surgery to adjust my digestive health condition. I can get back to leading my barely normal life again. But more important than any of that, Sebastian, what is this week's question from hell? Uh, This week's question from hell is, what policy are you proposing that will make gym class an even more awful experience for everyone? (laughs) What policy are you proposing that will make gym class an even more awful experience for everyone? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's inspired by the current ruling out of Ohio that basically says that any kid can, if any parent thinks that kid is not the gender that they, the parents say they are, the kid can be fondled extensively by uh, physicians to make that sure. Because, well, it's not like gym class isn't bad enough already. <laughs> Here's another new policy to make it even worse. Yeah, I mean, talk about <coughs> war on children. That is a war on children. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we announce every week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. Sebastian will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell. Following our conversation with Henry on mass shootings and killings in the United States, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins... Your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. 
the This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, and the face mask, our coffee mug, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive, the winter hat, and everybody's favorite, the trucker's cap. You can see all of our stuff right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, where you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Sebastian has this week's hangover cure. Uh, This week's hangover cure is electrolyte drink tablets. According to an article at Us Weekly by Bernadette Duran with the headline, Seven Hangover Cures That Shoppers Say Work Wonders, uh, Doran writes, quote, If you've had too much fun during a long weekend or summer vacation, you may not be feeling like yourself when it's time to get back into the everyday groove. If, if libations were involved, they may take a toll on your immune system, which we all want to avoid. If you've ever experienced a hangover, you know how debilitating it can feel. With that in mind, we found a slew of different cures that you can either take before or after your event to help you out. End quote. And uh, one of the cures Doran offers is hydration tablets, which she shares are, quote, super easy to drink with water. There are a variety of flavors available to suit your preferences, and they will deliver you tons of hydration when you need it most. Shoppers who say they have sensitive stomachs claim these tablets work wonders, whether for a hangover or not, end quote. Uh, That makes this week's hangover cure electrolyte drink or what are also called hydration tablets. The uh, article actually suggests a specific brand of electrolytes slash hydration tablets, but unlike Us Weekly, we don't believe advertising disguised as a news article, which includes product placement, should be trusted as journalism. However, while I have been recovering from my surgery, I have had my dietician tell me what I should eat and drink, and she specifically suggested the brand of hydration electrolyte tablets that Us Weekly actually recommends. Of course, my dietician was not suggesting them as a hangover cure, but as a way to get much-needed electrolytes into my system while I'm suffering from dehydration, which is caused by my current health condition. And although I am not supposed to be indulging in alcohol, I must admit that I have had too many beers on occasion during my time of healing, and those electrolyte slash hydration tablets actually worked without the sodium or sugar or, or sugar substitutes that I'm supposed to be avoiding, and normally come in pre-mixed hydration drinks. So that's why they sh- she's prescribed these, if you will, uh, to me, is because, you know, those hydration drinks have tons of salt, tons of sugar, and tons of uh, sugar alternatives in them, and uh, substitutes in them, and that's really bad for my guts, apparently. And now, a programming note, today we are introducing a new segment that here on This Is Hell that many of you may have heard while I was out over the last couple of months. And it's called Seb's Soapbox, featuring our very own Sebastian Vupper. Sebastian, for those who have not heard it already, what is Seb's Soapbox, and what will you be talking about following our conversation with Henry? Uh, Seb's Soapbox is essentially something where I sit down and talk about a historical topic or rather about a, a, a something from today's politics and news and just stuff that's going on right now and 
look into the history of that, um, some societal problems, some issues, and uh, readings in terms of like how you are supposed to or how it's useful to think about certain things in history. And uh, today, um, I will get on my soapbox and uh, talk about why it is important to never dehumanize uh, people that are doing horrible, inhuman things to other human beings um, for reasons that I will explain later. Yes, and uh, the historical context of that. We got a guest suggestion from listener Tom G. this week, and it's a past guest who came up earlier uh, actually, last week on our in our conversation with Asim Sajad Akhtar on breaking Afghanistan, Tom writes, "Hey Chuck, it's wonder- wonderful to hear you back on the air and over the internet after enduring a harrowing, life-saving medical intervention and recuperation over the last few months. Your great crew of producers did a fine job of keeping the show going with loads of stellar, hellish content from the last 25 plus years. But now it is somehow somewhat comforting." To hear your dulcet tones calling out the hell we all endure, live, and in real time again. Looking forward to toasting your continued improving health in person at Carrie's Lounge soon. FYI, I happened upon this new book about one of the 20th century's most hellish, most adored war criminals, Winston Churchill. I'd like to think the author, Tariq Ali, would make a great guest on This Is Hell. Three cheers, Tom G. So the book he's talking about is Tariq Ali's new book, Winston Churchill, His Times, His Crimes. And the Verso Books website describes the book like this. Was Churchill anything more than a plump carp happy to swim in the foulest of ponds to defend the empire? Now, that's the kind of question that we would be asking Tariq Ali. That's just amazing. Was Churchill anything more than a plump carp happy to swim in the foulest of ponds to defend the empire? So thanks, Tom. Uh, we've had Tariq on the show in the past, and as we told Asim last week, uh, you know, we're going to do everything we can to get uh, Tariq on the show again to discuss his new book on Winston Churchill. And yes... Churchill was a real piece of work who was far too praised today. And yes, I look forward to having a few beers with you soon, too, Tom. Hopefully at This Is Hell Office Hours, which I hope will be returning as early as next month. But who knows? Coming up, mass shootings and killings in the United States. We'll also have this week, uh, well, we, we'll have uh, Seb Soapbox, uh, some of your answers to this week's question from hell. And uh, I think we'll be reading some more of your emails, possibly, hopefully, maybe not. Sent to us at Chuck at com, Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. This is hell. Mass shootings and killings happen every day in the United States. Statistically, these brutal acts of deadly violence happen more than once a day so far in 2022, with so much deadly violence, especially when it targets young people. You would think that we would all be having a discussion on the leading structural causes of what has become normalized and endemic deadly violence. Here to help us understand that conversation, why that conversation is not taking place, and to have the discussion that is sorely, sorely missed. Cultural critic, writer, university professor, journalist Henry Giroux wrote the article at Truthout. To end mass shootings, we need to change the deeper structure of life in the United States. Good morning, Henry. How are you? Hi, Chuck. Good to hear your voice. Glad to hear you're getting better. Yeah, just barely getting better, but getting better. Getting better every day, which is something that I desperately need. I hope you're doing well. I'm, I'm okay. 
<laughs> okay, that's about where I am too. So you write violence is the oxygen of authoritarianism. It is the symbolic and visceral breeding ground of fear, ignorance, greed, and cruelty. It flourishes in societies marked by despair, ignorance, lies, hate, and cynicism, which is just beautiful writing, even though it's such a horrible topic. Yet many of the solutions, you know, in response to the dozens of mass shootings that take place in the last couple of weeks here in the United States, have mostly focused on security, whether that's making schools more secure, arming teachers, or returning uh, to the assault rifle ban Republicans overturned in 2004 during the Bush administration, after which we have seen a massive increase in mass shootings, especially in schools. So when considering mass shootings, why not focus on security rather than despair, ignorance, lies, hate, and cynicism? Well, I, I think that it's very interesting because I think national security is really code for legitimating uh, state violence in general, uh, meaning that when you talk about the national security state, what you're, what you're saying is that we have to accentuate two things that it seems to me reproduce the kind of violence that we're seeing in the United States endlessly and repeatedly. One is fear. National security suggests there's an enemy. It suggests that in all aspects of our lives, there's something that's threatening us and that we need to basically arm ourselves in order to address it. Secondly, national security is synonymous with the concept of militarization. And it means that we need to militarize everything from schools to synagogues to recreational areas, uh, you name it. Uh, you know, we need more guns, we need more police, we need more security. So security in this sense means fear. Fear means that there's a menace out there. Generally, it's uh, in the form of, uh, of uh, undocumented immigrants, black people, brown people, poor people. And, and thirdly, it provides a rationale for basically keeping the gun industry going. So it, it isn't just a rationale, it, it's more than that. It's the ideological scaffolding that basically is at the core of what in a sense has become a society wedded to violence. Uh, so when I hear the word national security, I know exactly what that means. That means we don't want guns off the streets. That we don't even want to implement the most limited gun, uh, gun, gun laws. What we want to do basically is celebrate security by militarizing it, having people live in fear and arm people even more. And when it comes to that fear, one of the other things that the right insists the problem is, is mental illness. Does that focus on mental illness address the despair, ignorance, lies, hate and cynicism that you see behind the violence? I, I think that the focus on mental illness is part of a larger logic that the Republicans in particular have seized upon since the 1980s. Mental illness means you have an individual who is basically isolated, who has a, a mental health problem, and that this has nothing to do with systemic considerations. It's basically a problem that we can address through the language of therapy and maybe some, some slight uh, ameliorations in our public health system. Uh, the fact of the matter is, most of these shootings are not done by people who have mental health problems. This is not to say that mental health is not a crucial issue, but it's not an issue that should be linked to gun violence. It's, it's an issue that should be linked to the despair and loneliness and alienation that exists throughout society and the lack of public health services to address pandemics <laughs> and other health problems that collectively uh, discriminate and impact on the, the most uh, undeserved populations. When you say violence is the oxygen of authoritarianism, is that in reference to the government, the society, or both? Is this about more than the government employing authoritarianism and about us acting in authoritarian ways ourselves? 
Yeah, it is about more than simply the government. I, I mean, it's, it's about a society that was founded in violence. It's about a society that was founded in genocide uh, with respect to Native Americans. It's about a society that has a long legacy of horror against Black people and slavery. It's about Jim Crow. It's about a tradition historically that has shaped almost every aspect of American life and has translated into numerous forms of violence, particularly against those populations. But more importantly, it's about a form of historical amnesia that prevents this country, unlike Germany, with respect to the Holocaust, from coming to grips with its crimes, with coming to grips with the fact that it's a criminogenic society. And in that sense, it normalizes that violence and repeats it because it has nothing to learn from its own history. And of course, to say the least, Chuck, because you know you always ask wonderful questions. This is also a, a government issue. I mean, the, w w when we talk about violence, we have to talk about two things. We have to talk about the concentration of power in particular hands and how it works. And secondly, we have to talk about the ideological scaffolding that legitimates this power and who benefits from it? And how do they create a kind of amnesia that allows people to believe that even though this, as you said, even though there have been more shootings than, you know, than there have been days since the beginning of 2022, how this can become normalized? And what, thirdly, what is going on to keep people in a state of manufactured ignorance from even being able to under, understand and address the problems in a systemic way. So you also point out that violence and especially the killing of children, such as the mass killing that occurred at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, leaving at least 19, student dead, 19 students dead, can't be understood in the immediate, this immediacy of shock and despair, however deplorable and understandable. The ideological and structural conditions that nourish and legitimate it have to be revealed both in their connections to power and in the systemic unmasking of those who benefit from such death-dealing conditions. So how much can banning assault rifles, employing background checks, and more resources for mental illness, how much can that address those death-dealing conditions? I, I think there are two issues here, and I, and I think you have to think in terms of short-term and long-term solutions so that one doesn't cancel out the other. And I think in terms of short-term solutions, all the things that you just mentioned matter. Uh, as we saw in, after 1996 in Australia, with the terrible uh, massacre that took place there, 35 people were killed. They banned assault rifles. They haven't had a mass shooting since. So it, it seems to me in the most immediate sense, there are things that can absolutely be done to limit the gun industry, take guns off the streets, and at the same time, begin to create protective environments in the most immediate sense, particularly for children, that would be beneficial. Thirdly, it seems to me, we have to come to grips with a society that trades in fear, that trades in cruelty, that elevates economic interest over profits, and that allows basically a financial elite to govern a country in ways just that it, in which it operates off the assumption that you can separate economic activity from social costs. And what I'm saying here is we have a country that's lost its vision. It has no sense of the social contract anymore. It has no sense of what it means to elevate human needs over profits. It has no sense of what it means to invest in the social contract or in public goods. That society becomes criminogenic. It does not have the question, it can't raise the question. It doesn't have the solutions and it doesn't have the vision and it doesn't have the energy 
to basically expand both the meaning of democracy and the idea and the promise. That's a society that's in a spiral that has no defenses against authoritarianism and no defenses against the emergence of our fascist politics. So that if that's the case, there'll be more violence in many other ways. I mean, we talk about gun violence, but what we don't talk about is slow violence. We don't talk about the violence of poverty. We don't talk about the violence of kids being pushed off the, the extended tax credits recently. Uh, you know, three million kids pushed into poverty. We don't talk about massive inequality and that we have young people who basically you don't have jobs, who are struggling with debt or people who have to make a choice between food and medicine. You want to talk about violence? Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the violence that isn't spectacularized, but eats away and erodes the possibility of agency in everyday life for millions of human beings. That's the kind of violence that will not be solved simply by addressing gun rights. So why does putting profits before people, why does that lead to deadly violence and mass shootings? It leads to deadly violence for a number of reasons. One, it means that it opens up the opportunity without checks for corporations to develop, whether it's the arms industry, uh, which is the largest industry, one of the largest industries in the world in the United States, or the gun industry, which is a criminogenic industry that trades in profits over human life uh, uh, by, by selling uh, what we might call, they become merchants of death, selling assault rifles and, and other things. Uh, in, in ways that we, we, without being able to check that power, they not only flood the market with, it seems to me, with instruments of violence, Chuck, they shape policy. These are people who shape policy. I mean, they spent, the gun industry spent $15 million uh, uh, in 2020 in lobbying. $15 million. Think about it. So in a sense, they're defining the ideological scaffolding and values and assumptions in the United States, which then gets elevated to an organizing principle. And what is that? That principle is that violence is basically the ultimate and only way to really address social problems. The Republican Party and the gun lobby, they both contribute to the violence, obviously. But is, is the bigger problem the power of money in politics and the ability of the gun lobby to affect Republican uh, opposition to any and all gun laws. Would Do you think that limiting that money, would, in your opinion, would that change the Republican position on guns? Is, the, is this all about Republican dependence on money from the gun lobby? No, it's not. It's symptomatic. And when I say it's symptomatic, what I'm suggesting is that the deeper rot is in a neoliberal system that basically concentrates wealth and power in relatively few hands. That's the problem. And all we see with the Republicans is simply they're the endpoint of, of a political and economic system that basically has collapsed in terms of its own legitimacy. It can't defend itself anymore. And so now what they turn to, of course, is racism and race, racial politics. Now they blame back blacks, undocumented, uh, undocumented immigrants and others. I mean, this is they, they've now become the party of white supremacy because there's no way that neoliberalism can justify itself anymore. It's collapsed. It's, it's suffering from what I call a legitimation crisis. On the other hand, the Democratic Party is the party of Wall Street. I mean, they're wedded to the same set of assumptions. So it seems to me that, you know, until we change that system, uh, you, you know, the, the violence will continue, except with moderate reforms. Maybe there'll come a day when assault rifles will be taken off the market. I don't know. 
although I doubt it. But at the same time, those deeper political, economic, and social issues are the issues that really matter in terms of how it defines the United States. Remember, let's go back to the 1980s. I mean, you know this as well as I do. You know, when, you, when, when Reagan uttered those infamous words that government is the problem and not the solution, what he really was not saying was that big government is a problem. He was saying that government doesn't have any sense of responsibility to address important social and economic issues. That's what he was really saying. You know, when he married Margaret Thatcher, uh, and you know, in which she said, you know, there's no such thing as society, only individuals, you begin to see something happening. And what you see happening is at, at the first level, you see all problems being individualized, meaning that we're now saying to people, look, if there's climate change, it's up to you, you know, like put out the green bags. You know, if you're unemployed, it means you're not really very smart. You don't know how to really, or you're lazy. If you're homeless, you like lying outside. It goes on and on. But what we have here is a society in which social problems have been so individualized that people cannot translate particular troubles into larger systemic considerations. They become depoliticized. So you have a crisis of political agency in this country. People basically don't have the language to be able to both recognize how power is wrecking the United States into, under a neoliberal system of what I call neoliberal fascism. And secondly, they don't have the tools, they don't have the language to understand what it might mean to move from individual anger to mass resistance. Thirdly, you have a cultural apparatus that endlessly depoliticizes people, keeps them stupid so that they really can't address the issues that they that they need to address. Let me, let me give you one example of this. I mean, the Buffalo shooter. One of the things that I find interesting in his in his manifesto, so to speak, that almost nobody has commented on, is he talks about how lonely he was. He talks about how alienated he was. Well, that is a real signal to me because it suggests something much deeper. It suggests a society that has invoked, provoked, and produced massive forms of social atomization. People are isolated, people are cut off, people are alienated, and they don't have the language to deal with that. Where do they go? They turn to cults. They turn to people like Trump. They turn to fascist politics. That despair and anger in a country that celebrates violence and is militarized already offers an easy solution. You know, kill somebody. You're angry, get an A-15. Uh, you know, pick up a weapon. Do anything you can to let to vent that anger. Then think about the fourth issue I'm talking about here. You have a major political party that actually endlessly argues that violence in the name of political opportunism is justified. Whether we're talking about January 6th, but we're talking about the, really the, the, the domestic terrorists that now occupy the Senate and Congress who are constantly talking about violence and how much it's needed. Uh, this is a very, I call this a criminogenic environment. It's, a, it's, an, it's an environment that celebrates violence while at the same time it produces it and at the same time creates the conditions to legitimate it. So, you know, the UK, several years ago, they decided that they should have a ministry of loneliness. And when that news got here to the States, whenever it was actually mentioned on the news or in the media, it was uh, met with derision. Uh, so what does that reveal to you about the media when it like it laughs at the idea of a ministry of loneliness? It, it, well, I, I mean, first of all, the term is really odd, uh, it, it, almost comical in some ways. 
given the fact that it sounds like it's a caricature or something Orwell would say. But, but, I, but I think it, it, the, the, the dominant media treats those kinds of issues as toxic because in a sense, they create the conditions for that loneliness, right? Whether it's true, the mass, a mass culture of cruelty, the spectacularization of violence, you know, the endless trivialization of everyday life, the uh, elevation of celebrity culture to the status of a godlike sort of phenomena. Uh, and, and secondly, they sort of collapse it into therapy. They, their, their sense is that loneliness means you should go to a therapist. And how stupid is that, right? That has nothing to do with us. They don't have a wider vision in which they are able to translate that into three things. One, a critique of neoliberalism and the way in which it alienates and isolates people. Uh, secondly, they have no understanding of the basic conditions that actually produce this. And, and thirdly, they have no language for talking about political agency outside of the logic of depoliticization. And fourthly, I guess, the last thing they wanna talk about is the public imagination and civic culture and how it is nourished by trust, it's nourished by solidarity. It's nourished by a vision that allows people to get outside of themselves. They don't want that. They want to entertain people while at the same time teaching them to be stupid. So, I mean, that's the last thing that they want to talk about. They don't want to talk about a discourse that indicts themselves, I guess, in the short run. And you mentioned the uh, corporate controlled media that floods the culture with the notion that individual liberty is synonymous with unfettered gun rights. How does individual liberty on its own, how can that lead to mass shootings? How can that focus on individual liberty lead to mass shootings? Because it abandons any notion of freedom connected to questions of social responsibility. It completely abandons it. It, it operates off the assumption that freedom is basically about self-interest. And that means you can do anything you want, you can say anything you want, and you're not responsible for either what you say or the actions you engage in. That's a toxic notion of freedom. That's not freedom. That, that's what, what uh, one, one author I quoted called a cruel freedom. That's a notion of cruel freedom. That's a freedom that basically uh, perpetuates violence in its own sake, because it seems to suggest that we're isolated. Uh, we have no responsibility to anybody else. We shouldn't care about anybody else. And it reproduces a culture of cruelty, a culture of violence, and a, and a culture that basically abandons, I would argue, any sense of ethics and any sense of justice. You cannot have a society that believes that freedom means you can do anything you want and you're not responsible for it. <laughs> that's, not, that's, that's not the kind of freedom that keeps a society together. You know, freedom has to be linked to social responsibility, has to be linked to values that celebrate others. It has to be linked to a notion of democracy that says that questions of equity and questions of, of, of justice and questions of equality are central and trust are central to what freedom means. We are speaking with Henry Giroux. His most recent book is Pedagogy of Resistance Against Manufactured Ignorance. You can find all of our interviews, not all of them, but a big chunk of our interviews over the last eight years with Henry by going to our website, thisishell.com, and searching on his last name, G-I-R-O-U-X. You write in the uh, uh, current uh, historical moment, the market-driven values of freedom, choice, and rugged individualism have merged with the concentration of power in the hands of the super-rich in corporations, in unbridled individualism, and a culture of terror and fear. Why does putting power in the hands of the super-rich lead to a culture of uh, terror and fear? What would you say to someone who argues that the super-rich are not conducting mass shootings, so why blame them? They're not conducting mass shootings, but they basically own 
the cultural and political apparatuses that create the conditions for them to take place. We don't, we're not personalizing this. I mean, you know, I'm not going to point to somebody who basically is the CEO of the arms industry and say, Jesus, he's a terrible person. And therefore, you know, that's why we have violence. It's the conditions that create people like that, that basically matters. We have to eliminate the conditions that allow that kind of inequality to allow money to drive politics. When you have money driving politics, of course you want to keep people in fear. And of course you want to depoliticize them. And of course you want to do everything you can to prevent them from holding authority responsible and criticizing the conditions that they create that are totally at odds with questions of democracy. I mean, ask yourself the question, why is it, you know, as Jeff Lundgren has, has, uh, has argued in popular information, I mean, look at these corporations that are supporting, uh, you know, all these Republicans who basically are engaging in voter suppression. <laughs> I mean, you would think, wow, why would they do that? Well, they want to do that because they really support a white supremacist me message. And that is that, you know, they, they, even though they're, they're engaged in the, the call for profits, they're also driven by ideologies that are fascistic. They want the government to leave them alone. They want the government to lower their taxes. They want the government to create spaces and allow their profits to surge, whether it's through pollution or whether it's through, uh, you know, not sort of having to pay for social provisions and social goods that uh, expand the possibilities of equality. And you uh, cite Al Jazeera pointing out that sales of weapons and military services by the world's 100 biggest arms companies reached a record of 50, or sorry, $531 billion in 2020. To you, what explains that record-breaking global arms sales happening now? Are they related to the pandemic? Because if they're related to that kind of crisis, and you know we have climate change, and climate change is going to get worse and worse and worse, can we expect these global arms sales to keep setting records? Oh, they're, they're, yes, they're going up. I, I mean, we, 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 when we talk about the global scene, what we're witnessing today, and for me, Orban in Hungary is a model for this, who is now, of course, being celebrated by uh, endless members of the Republican Party, the intellectual hacks who legitimate what they do on, on Fox News or whatever and others. Uh, what you're seeing is an attack on democracy, unlike anything we have seen since the 1930s. And it's spreading and it's global. Freedom House has put out every year a an international survey in which they look at the state of democracy throughout the globe. The democracies, that, these countries that were once democracies are fading, They're, and, and including the United States, which now is no longer a full-fledged democracy. And it seems to me that model in Hungary suggests something about three things. It suggests an, an ongoing emphasis on national security and ultranationalism, which feed each other. It suggests the promotion of a kind of global cultural fear in which refugees and the notion of displacement becomes ingrained in that nationalism, further legitimating the call for military arms and national security. Thirdly, it seems to me it operates off a notion of a dissent that has to be squelched, that uh, increasingly limits the, the, uh, the possibilities for various cultural apparatuses to now engage in holding power accountable. That does nothing more than feed the arms industry. It feeds the notion of the national security state, and it feeds the notion of ultranationalism. So as long as those things expand, those forces, I don't see in any way 
how the arms industry is, is basically going to be uh, in, in any way controlled. And regarding your qualification, the issues that really matter, the threat of nuclear war. And of course, I'm sorry. And then we can talk about Ukraine, right? We don't talk about diplomacy with regard to Ukraine. We talk about arms. I mean, every time you look at the mainstream media, they're talking about how we need to send more arms. And so I, I think it's indicative of a global mindset now in which the question of violence and the questions, the question of the merchants of death take on a kind of celebrity status and that that's the way both global and domestic problems will, will be solved. And I wanna mention one other thing, and, and I hope this isn't too far-fetched. You know, I'm intrigued by Josh Hawley and Tucker Carlson's increasing concern about masculinity and the crisis of masculinity in the United States. If you go back and you look at the literature from Nazi Germany, you probably will remember that they also talked about masculinity to such a degree that they wanted to turn every kid into a warrior in the schools. And that this notion of masculinity was linked to basically uh, uh, producing young people and producing adults who were warriors. That's part of the language of national security. That's part of the language of militarization. To be a man, you have to own a gun. To be a man, you can't be feminized. To be a man, you've got to use a red light on your genitals to increase the level of testosterone uh, so that you, you'll be able to experience what it means to you know, inhabit a kind of masculine odor, I guess. So it, it seems to me even at that level, you know, we're seeing a form of agency being produced that is ideologically rooted in the culture of violence. And you also point out that violence proliferates in a society where when uh, justice is corrupted and power works to produce mass forms of historical and social amnesia, largely aimed at degrading society's critical and moral capacities. What has that historical and social amnesia caused us to forget? What do the super rich want us to forget? They want us to forget everything that would suggest we have something to learn from history to recognize how evil they are. But even worse, they want us to forget what it means to learn from history in order to expand the possibility of resistance in political agency. I mean, I, I think that what your question suggests that is profoundly important to me, and I may be wrong, but I don't think so. And that is when you look at the attack on schools today, uh, you know, the banning of books, the, the elimination of history, the, ref, the, the claim that shouldn't, students shouldn't feel uncomfortable if they have to talk about slavery or injustice or any issue around social injustice. And particularly in Florida with DeSantis, who really is the, the United States' version of Orban, you know, a kind of soft fascist in, in many ways. That attack cannot be decoupled from the mass violence we see today in that it's a particularly engineered way of keeping people stupid and in fear so that they don't have the critical capacity to actually address the underlying causes of violence. All they're left with is the notion of menace, menace, the menace of immigrants, the menace of black people, the menace of women who want to in some way have control over their reproductive rights, the menace of people who are arguing for ecological changes in order to save the planet, who now become feminized men. 
And it, and, it, and it seems to me that kind of ideological scaffolding is not just about an attack on ideas, whether it's in the form of historical amnesia, it's now been translated into an enormous attack on all forms of education, whether we're talking about schools or we're talking about universities or we're talking about cultural apparatuses of the sort that you occupy. You know, the, 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 the really liberated apparatuses who really are talking about issues that matter. I mean, this is a very serious moment that if you disconnect it from the violence that's going on, what you lose sight of are the institutions that are crucial to be able to address that violence. When they disappear, you no longer have a language to address that violence. Civic culture collapses. In the collapse, impending collapse of civic culture, all you have is fascism. Authoritarianism hates the possibility of people being able to think critically. It's dangerous, as Arant once said. And that's why Trump has endlessly said he loves the uneducated. Of course he does. And now we know why. You write that domestic terrorists now parade as politicians, white supremacists dominate the Republican Party, and revel in a civically depleted culture that has abandoned justice, ethics, and hope for the corrupt currencies of wealth, power, and self-aggrandizement. One of the other things that the uh, right, the Republican Party conservatives, are blaming for the mass shootings is, you know, they used to blame video games, and now they're blaming social media. To what extent is self-aggrandizement bipartisan, even universal, when it comes to social media platforms, self-marketing, and the commodification of the self that seems ubiquitous today? And what role do you think that plays in mass shootings? Well, I, I think it plays an enormous role. I, I mean, I, I think that the, you know, when we talk about the social media, we're not talking about a, whether or not this technology in and of by itself is evil. We're talking about power and how that technology is controlled and for what interest. That's really the issue that we need to talk about. And I think that when you have a media that opens its doors to propagating white supremacy, opens its doors to endless forms of commodification, opens its doors to a form of technology in which algorithms can trace uh, every moment, opens its doors to shaming young girls because they don't have the body of a, of, of, you know, a, a USA pageant model. Uh, you know, we have to ask ourselves, you know, what is at work here that is taking every institution, every technology and using it in the interest of a society that basically trades in both social abandonment, privatization, surveillance, an endless commodification. So one of the things that people are suddenly uh, concerned about within the mainstream media is, well, they have this fear of rising Christian nationalism within the Republican Party, which they base on the idea, you know, the people in the Republican Party and Christian nationalists base on the idea that the United States is and has been from the outset a Christian nation. So does neoliberalism play a role in rising Christian nationalism? And if so, what's that role? The role is it supports it. It supports the ideology because it, it basically suggests that the problems that we have have nothing to do with the economy and what it's done to shape that economy by concentrating wealth in relatively relatively few hands and spreading an ideology of utter self-interest, commodification, privatization, and deregulation. Uh, what it what it does is it supports a base that now says that you know white Christian nationalism and the evangelical assumption that. Uh, the only people who should occupy the public space and, uh, and should qualify to be a citizen are white Christians. Uh, that basically sets up a culture of fear that says anybody who isn't 
doesn't occupy those positions are basically the enemy of democracy. And, and, I, and I think that neoliberalism supports that because it, it's a politics of diversion. It diverts attention away from real serious issues about politics and power, while at the same time, legitimating a notion of white supremacy that now translates into a whole range of policies that people buy, including the fact that one in three Americans believe that violence in the interest of political opportunism against the government, for instance, is justified. How does normalization of the mass killings, of the mass shootings, of the mass violence that we're seeing here in the United States, how does that normalization obscure cultural conditions? Because you would think repeated events like those of mass shootings and mass killings, especially of young people in schools, and specifically by young people, would lead to a recognition that there must be something bigger here at play, that structural conditions must be contributing or playing some role in these horrific instances of deadly violence. So why do these events become normalized rather than causing reconsideration of structural uh, conditions that may be contributing or at play? I think there are a couple of issues. I think, first of all, the relentlessness of the violence. You know, it's endless. It takes place every day. There's a mass shooting now, I don't know what, once every two days in which four, four more people are basically shot. Or, uh, or killed. I, I, I think secondly, it's the way in which these vi- this violence is taken up. It's taken up in a way that either person it completely personalizes it. We need to say prayers, we need to focus on the people who were killed. Uh, we need to understand the sorrow that people are going through, and uh, which basically is, is understandable, but it doesn't address the issue. There's only so much pain that a public can absorb uh, it, it seems to me, in terms of the relentlessness of these issues. There's no major public debate around the larger issues. The stuff gets spectacularized. You have a 24-7 news, news channels that, that basically begin to trivialize the stuff. And all of a sudden, you have a country that basically lives in the moment. You live in a culture of immediacy. So what, you know, after, after two weeks, nobody remembers Buffalo anymore. Uh, it's gone. But I, th- I think even, even more so, you have a country in which questions of amnesia uh, now are so widespread that it's really difficult not to forget anything, uh, regardless of how important it is. But I, th- I guess there's also another issue that is implied here that needs to be addressed. And, and that is, look, kids are a burden in this society today. Kids are a long-term investment. That means that you have to raise taxes. That means you have to invest in public schools. You have to invest in health. You have to. You don't. You don't criminalize all their behaviors. You don't turn schools into armed fortresses. You don't hire more police than you do teachers. We don't value youth anymore. They've been written out of the script of democracy. So why should we care? Except when they're ten-year-olds, and it's so horrible that you know even even the uh, the most hardened individual finds that hard to ignore. But at the same time, the spectacularized violence mobilizes our emotions, but it doesn't at the same time, it is not at the same time matched by a crisis of ideas in which we look for a new language to basically understand this in order to bring it to an end. You point out that against this uh, authoritarian death machine, we all need to mobilize to turn despair into militant hope, critical analysis into action, and individual anger into collective struggles that refuse the seductions of gangster capitalism and its rebranded fascism. What do you mean by militant hope? I mean, hope that at one level doesn't exist in the world of Disney, in which we just say, well, let's hope for the best. 
Uh, it's a hope that basically attempts to understand literally the problems that we face ideologically, structurally, economically, and politically, and to address those problems and knowing that history is not closed. As Marx once said, it's open, that people can mobilize, that we've learned something from history, from the civil rights movement, the gay movement, the women's rights movement. History can change. So we want to reject three things. We want to reject the notion of normalization that says the history doesn't change. We want to reject the notion that political agency is only about the individual and not about larger social movements. And thirdly, we want to look at what's going on in the country today that's inspiring and energizing, particularly in terms of whether we're talking about young people who are now mobilizing against police violence or mobilizing against racism or mobilizing against ecological destruction. They don't make the news, but they're there. And, I, and, it, and it seems to me that kind of hope, which is the fifth issue, and that is a hope that's capable of imagining an alternative to the present moment so that the present moment, that, so that the future doesn't mimic the present. When you, when you stop believing that, you both become cynical and you become complicitous. And I, and I think there's, a ter there's two terms here that are crucial for me. You know, we can talk about crises, which in my mind means a crisis is something that can be addressed and overcome through a question of militant hope. But then when you talk about catastrophes, which is the language of normalization, that's a language that seems to suggest that very little can be done. This is fate. This is how it is. We'll just have to live with it. I think we focus too much on catastrophes and rarely ever on the question of crises. And I, but I think at the same time, beneath that form of ideological destruction and legitimation, there is a, a enormous movements all over this country that basically are willing to fight at a moment of urgency in which it's clear that the United States has tipped over the abyss. We are no longer a democracy. We're now in the midst of a fascist politics. And we have for the first time in, uh, since slavery, we have a political party that basically is a white supremacist party. But as we've discussed before, and I don't want to ask any of the questions that I've asked you the numerous times you've been on the show in the past, uh, this authoritarianism isn't just confined to one of the parties. So how do you see authoritarianism as bipartisan? I see it as bipartisan by asking the fundamental question, and that is, what kind of vision do these parties have and what kind of interest do they attach themselves to? And regardless of whether the language is openly fascist or simply centrist, are they parties that are wedded to the banks? Are they parties wedded to the corporations? Are they parties wedded to the notion that capitalism somehow can always be translated into a form of democracy? And that's the, that's the ultimate test for me. Capitalism is not democracy. It's deadly. It's criminogenic. And if you really want to talk about fascism, you're going to have to talk about capitalism. And when they're capable of doing that, then they would have crossed the divide. But they're not capable of doing that. And I think as long as these two parties are in power, we're in a, going to be in a state of a, a state of endless crises, economically, politically, ideologically, and uh, ecologically. You write that youth are already at the forefront of this organizing, as you were just discussing youth activism. After the mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida in 2018, youth rose up against gun violence in unprecedented ways, creating the March for Our Lives and connecting the issue of, of school shootings with 
police violence, racial justice, and other urgent issues. Youth are also speaking out and rising up in monumental ways regarding the climate crisis, racial justice, immigration justice, war, prisons, and more. Adults would do well to recognize bolster and amplify these forms of youth activism to help them grow and gain momentum. And as you know, in the very recent past, one time, Democrats would argue that a demographic shift on race and ethnicity would inevitably lead to more membership in the Democratic Party and uh, supporters for its position. So does youth organizing mean that there will be an inevitable shift away from authoritarianism by either party? I I think it, it means two things. I think it means that young people are going to have to do at least three things. They're going to have to recognize that being written out of the script of democracy, the urgency of the nature means they have to be involved politically and they have to be involved not just individually, they have to be involved collectively. That's the first issue. Secondly, it seems to me that regardless of the different movements and issues that these young people are involved in, they've got to create a mass movement. They've got to come together, unify these movements, figure out what the threads are that hold them together, and essentially sign on to a larger set of considerations and a larger vision around the need for a socialist democracy or radical democracy. Thirdly, it seems to me they can work within the Democratic Party, if that matters, while at the same time realizing that short-term reforms don't solve the problem. They have one foot in and one foot out. Push the Democratic Party as far left as they can, but recognize the Democratic Party is the party of centrism and neoliberalism. Thirdly, they need to create a left party. We need a socialist party in this in this country. And I think more and more young people, as you know from the studies, consider themselves socialists in some fundamental way. And those that don't articulate a number of concerns that are compatible with a kind of radical socialist position. So in that sense, I'm hopeful. Uh, I mean, there's no guarantee here, but I I do think that conditions will get worse. I think in 2022, the Democrats will be gone uh, and we will be in the midst of an unadulterated fascist politics that will basically cripple social provisions impose enormous restrictions on on dissent, uh, and as uh, DeSantis is doing, destroy the universities and destroy public education. And I think that it's the, the question of resistance in this situation is not one that will has uh, in which a choice is involved. You either resist or you die. Uh, that's it. There's the, the, the nature of the urgency of the problem will produce massive, massive forms of resistance in this country. And the beginning is already taking place as, of course, uh, women's reproductive rights now get canceled out. That's just the beginning. And I think that once people realize that all of these issues are, 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 are connected, I, I call this period the present of disconnections. And I think it as long as those disconnections exist, we're in trouble. But when we bring them together and we come to realize that what we're really dealing with here is a form of neoliberal fascism, a form of capitalism that's not only going criminogenic, but uh, basically is part of a death march for the planet and almost everybody else. Uh, I don't think that resistance then is a matter of, 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 of you know, idealism. You know, oh, maybe, I don't know. I think the nature of the urgency is going to create more resistance than we've ever seen before. You also mentioned uh, critical analysis. How much can uh, the focus on theory and not on practice, uh, how much can that kind of debate over theory even be a distraction from putting things into practice? Well, I, I think if the question of theory sort of evolves into some sort of abstruse nonsense, 
that nobody can relate to, then I think it becomes a liability. But at the same time, I, I, I think that, you know, we, we need articulating frameworks that people can understand, that they can inhabit, which they can recognize themselves and basically under, under, make connections that uh, in, in, in some way raise new questions. The point of theory is to raise questions that haven't been raised. The point of theory is to make connections that haven't been made. The point of theory is to energize people with a framework in which they can recognize themselves. So we're not talking about theory in the most abstract sense. We're talking about a politics of recognition and identification that allows people to think critically so as to be able to expand their own sense of political and collective agency. So the theory practice divide is, you know, does that, I don't even know if that makes any sense anymore. You know, maybe in the 1980s, it made more sense in academia. But the real issue here is how do we talk to people and provide narratives and visions and frameworks that expand the possibility to raise questions that they've never raised before in which they can recognize not only their own strengths and weaknesses, but the possibility to be inspired and to go forward. One last question for you, Henry. We have been speaking with Henry Giroux. His most recent book is Pedagogy of Resistance Against Manufactured Ignorance. You can follow Henry on Twitter at Henry Giroux. Find out more about Henry at his website, henryagiroux.com. So you write that, uh, you know, our final question, as we always do, by the way, is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You hate you may hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write that Frederick Douglass was right when he stated, quote, Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did and it never will. Find out just what any people will quietly submit to, and you have found out the exact measure of injustice and wrong which will be imposed upon them, and these will continue till they are resisted with either words or blows or with both. The limits of tyrants are prescribed by the endurance of those whom they oppress. But do tyrants respond to anything other than blows, other than violence? Generally, no. And, and so I, I think that what that suggests is never believe you can simply change their minds. The struggle isn't over basically changing their minds. The struggle is over taking power away from them. And that's going to happen through mass resistance, ideologically, politically, and otherwise. I, I mean, I, I hate to say this because I don't want to sound too radical here for your audience, but we need to really rethink the notion of resistance. You know, not only do we need to, a new language and a new vision to do this, we need new tactics. We need to stop this economy from working. We need to engage in forms of direct action that we saw during the civil rights movement and the gay rights movement. We need basically to both bring this machine to an end while being able to educate people and create what Baklav Havif once called parallel policies, parallel institutions that basically allow us to understand how human need is more important than simply the accumulation of profit under the aegis of neoliberal capitalism. Despite the depressing nature of the topic that we've been discussing today, Henry, it is always, always a pleasure to hear your voice and have you on our show. And it's always an honor. I cannot thank you enough for all the support you've shown to our show. Thanks for having me on, Chuck. All right. Take care, Henry. Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell. If what you just heard from Henry on authoritarianism, neoliberalism, mass shootings, and mass killings, if that conversation was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding or made you feel like you actually learned something or to realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, 
which goes back to its regularly scheduled time this week on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time. It's podcast shortly after at the same place. Patreon.com slash This Is Hell. Please show your support for This Is Hell because... Well, we need it. On last week's Patreon podcast, following my first full week back here on This Is Hell, since being hospitalized for an emergency surgery three months ago, an emergency surgery that after talking to my surgeon this weekend, I am starting to realize that, you know, when he uses phrases like, you were on death's door, you realize how serious the condition was that you had. So on on Patreon, I look back at the impact that time away from the show not only had on my own personal life, but also how it has affected my worldview and my view of what we do and what we will be doing here in the future on This Is Hell, which is unlike any other radio show, live stream, or podcast. Uh, We also shared an interview from 20 years ago when we spoke with Marjorie Cohn, associate professor at the Thomas Jefferson School of Law in San Diego, who was on to talk with us about the nefarious way in which the FBI was reinventing itself at the time, way back in 2002, a conversation that in and of itself was disturbingly prescient. But you can only hear all that by subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast that streams live every Thursday and is podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash thisishell. Go there now and subscribe. It's going to be time for our very first uh, live installment of Seb's Soapbox in just a few minutes. But first, Sebastian, remind us, what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding? Uh, This week's question from hell is, what policy are you proposing that will make gym class an even more awful experience for everyone? What policy are you proposing that will make gym class an even more awful experience for everyone? Uh, Walter B. replies on Facebook, jezzercising to Tucker Carlson. God, that's horrible. (laughs) That's really awful. Uh, Steve Koppelman says, dodge kettlebell. (laughs) Okay, that sounds harsh. I was really good at dodgeball, by the way. I don't know why. I was was somebody who was bullied a lot and got in a lot of fights. But I was really good at dodgeball. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, practice makes perfect, right? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, Lisa B says, all PE classes will now take place inside the DMV. <laughs> That's just harsh. Essel S says, mandatory nudity. <laughs> that was a big deal over at Lane Tech. You used to yeah. have to swim naked. Really? <laughs> yeah. Huh. Uh, Warren L. says, confess your fears before the entire class beforehand. (laughs) Nice. And, uh, yeah, that's it for now. So it's now time for our very first live installment of Seb's Soapbox, unless you count the times he did Seb's Soapbox while the show was in limbo, while I was sick. And do we count those times? I don't even know. It was unsanctioned. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Unsanctioned. Our newest, I got to get some sanctions. Our newest segment where producer Sebastian Vopper, a historian himself, gives us his take on history and historical context. Take it away, Sebastian. Seb's Soapbox. Yeah, so today I want to talk about Nazis. Uh, and the lessons they can teach us. No, not as literal teachers. I don't want Waffness as Gunther here to teach us lessons about skull shapes and what eye color says about one's personality. No, I want to talk about what the Nazis can teach us about people. Because that is what they were. People. 
And I want to tell you that all of us need to remember that it is very important to humanize them. To remember that they were like us and of us. Uh, but I do not, I emphasize this, not want you to do that because I want you or anyone really to sympathize with the Nazis or people who did terrible things like the Nazis. I am arguing against the dehumanization of those among us guilty of inhuman thought and action. And this is something of a harsh history lesson, and uh, one that often gets forgotten or even misunderstood. Thinking of people like the Nazis, or the Klan, or Ted Cruz, or what have you, as monsters, as inhuman in any way, makes things too easy. Because people are complicated and capable of doing horrible things, capable of seemingly inhuman thought and action, as I said. But portraying and thinking of people guilty of those things as outside of humanity obscures just this. Evil deeds are not committed by monsters, they are committed by people. And like their many, many victims, the Nazis were just that. People. Human beings. Like you and me. And thinking of them as inhuman obscures the true gravity of their crimes more than this kind of thought actually reveals. And this is ultimately what philosopher Hannah Arendt was talking about when she wrote about the banality of evil um, when reporting on the Eichmann trial in Jerusalem in the, in the 60s. The Nazis, just like many of the people today committed to inhuman thought and action, were people. Small, often boringly ordinary men and women who first gave in to being seduced by a powerful and dangerous ideology, and then they allowed this ideology to seduce them further into the committing and assistance with, or at least tacit agreement to, inhuman acts. But the important lesson here is, none of these things made them inherently less human than you or me. And I want you to understand that I don't want anybody, like really anybody, to have sympathy with the poor Nazis. After all, they were just human, and as such, they deserve respect and understand. No, no, none of that. None of that. I want you to understand the monstrous capacity living within each and every one of us. Remember that the Nazis were, to many of their contemporaries, good people. Friendly neighbors, normal, ordinary folks who were pleasant to be around. Un until you got on their wrong side, I guess. And denying them their humanity lets them off the hook too easily. If we do that, we allow to buy into several dangerous arguments. If they were intrinsically monstrous, then committing monstrous acts would be perfectly in their nature. One might even argue that they couldn't have acted any other way, because what is a monster to do, not act like one? It is in the scorpion's nature to sting. Another argument that is implicit in this specific kind of othering is even more insidious. And also, I should uh, maybe add here uh, that we should also not call the Nazis or people who are like them crazy or stupid, because that's kind of a similar point to, to uh, making things too easily. Um, because if the perpetrators of crimes against humanity are denied their own, it makes those left behind blind to the dangers inherent in humanity itself while watching for the proverbial wolves to come to the door. Um, because the call is coming from inside the human family, to just mix all the metaphors I have here. The most important lesson about the Nazis, about the Khmer Rouge, about the American plantation and slaver class and all the other perpetrators of atrocities is that those people were people. They were off us and are off us. Why is this important to remember? Because 
If we deny those committed to ideologies that lead to atrocities their humanity, we are making them more than human, ultimately. We deny responsibility. If only monsters are capable of, capable of monstrosities, then all of us are safe as long as we cannot see any actual monsters around. But we are not. It was not inhuman creatures that appeared from somewhere beyond our world and murdered six million Jews in literal corpse factories built for solely that one purpose across Eastern Europe. It was not inhuman creatures from hell who enslaved 13 million people from the African continent in a quest for profit. That was people, human beings, ancestors, relatives, grandparents, aunts, uncles, sons and daughters. And by accepting this, by Embracing this harsh and ugly truth about ourselves, we can, I think, make the world safer. Because if we embrace this truth, if we accept that evil is indeed banal, we can guard against it. We, you, me, everyone around us can, under certain, certain circumstances, allow ourselves being seduced by powerful and dangerous ideas, which could make us commit inhuman deeds toward our fellow men and women and everyone in between. My grandparents' generation is guilty of the mass murder of European Jewry. The forefathers of, this, of the citizens of this country are guilty of the enslavement of untold numbers of people from the African continent and the murder of equally untold numbers of Native Americans. But they were not monsters. They were not outside of humanity. They were a part of it. And none of them are truly of the past either. None of them are truly beaten. Because the narrative of World War II is that the Nazis were defeated and the monsters were slain and the world was safe. The narrative is that slavery was abolished and the enslaved freed and the oppression of black people ended and all was well. But were these things really true? Did the world really become safe? A very, very large number of Nazis lived on, even in this country. Not all of them because of such efforts as, as, as Operation Paperclip either. The enslavers also lived on, and the ideology behind both of these specific groups is still doing quite well in this current age. So what lesson is there here to then? I want you to understand that within each and every one of us is a capacity for evil and a capacity to commit atrocities, or at the very least a capacity to stand idly by and when others do so. You, me, your mom, your dad, your nice neighbor, the cashier at the grocery store, all of us could, under the right circumstances, be just as bad as any Nazi, just as horrible as any slaveholder. And if we understand that, we have a chance to prevent that. If we can't understand that each, each of us can be seduced to do horrible things, then we have more of a chance to intervene with, within ourselves, but also with others. An intervention here is, of course, another topic, and engaging in this kind of intervention requires a lot of courage because, well, oftentimes this means going against someone's closely held beliefs. Because this kind of evil is seductive, the kind of evil that both Nazis and enslavers and American Indian butchers subscribe to uh, revolved around elevation of one's own group ab above others, which, well, feeling like one is inherently better than anyone else just feels good which is why this is such a difficult thing to fight against. And lastly, by people who subscribe to atrocious beliefs, uh, monsters, there's also in an inverse effect possible, because those people might actually embrace the idea. Yes, we are monsters, deplorables, Nazis, which uh, watch us do the things you say as monsters do. Watch us proudly embrace the moniker to trigger the libs. Well... And so this is uh, where the soapbox segment 
ends and I step back down from it. Tune in on Friday, 3 p.m. 3 p.m. Central Standard Time on our YouTube page, youtube.com slash thisishellradio1996. And uh, I will tell you this year again, but then I will also tell you why the opposite of this, hero worship and the elevation of one's champions, is equally dangerous. That's Friday at 3 p.m. on YouTube at... This is Hell Radio 1996. That just, you know, one of the things that you were mentioning reminded me of exactly what uh, Henry was talking about and what uh, historian Bruce Cummings talked about back in 2007 here on our radio show uh, when he was talking about the threat of the supposed threat of North Korea to U.S. national security and how the leadership of North Korea was evil. Bruce pointed out that once you label something as evil, that is the end of debate on that issue. That is the end of analysis. That is the end of uh, reconsidering or having a, a deeper understanding or uh, reconsidering and having an, a reexamination of the situation, whatever situation you're con- you're concerned about. Uh, Bruce Cummings was saying that that was the end of analysis. Once you call something evil, there's no reason to think about it anymore. You've labeled it as evil. It is the dead end of analysis and of criticism. That's the label that we have applied to Vladimir Putin, that he is just simply evil, and that is the dead end of that analysis. That's what when Henry was pointing out, how there is no talk about diplomacy or negotiations to end war and find peace in Ukraine. There is only discussion within our media of sending more and more arms, and the only solution is to send more arms. There is no further critical analysis because there is we've hit that dead end again by labeling something or someone evil. And so if you want to hear that conversation with Bruce Cummings, you can go uh, subscribe to our Patreon uh, podcast, patreon.com slash this is hell. It was like from two or three weeks ago. You can find it's from earlier in May. Uh, so check that out online. Uh, Sebastian, thank you very much for your very first inaugural episode of Seb Soapbox. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Sebastian for producing and contributing his first ever edition of Seb's Soapbox here on the full-length live show, an expanded version again of which will be posted later this week on our YouTube channel, This Is Hell Radio, 1996. Thank you to Henry Giroux as well, bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996. This is is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.